Father, thank you for this time that we can gather together, draw close to you. In our most severe times, when the wind has been knocked out of us again, and we aren't sure we can get back up for the 100th or 1,000th time, as we live through troubled times, help the saints to find refuge in you. Would you further our discipleship? Make our hearts continually proclaim your wondrous deeds through seeing your revealed character and your all-sufficient day-to-day care for your people. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. When we open your holy word, we glimpse heaven. We, we don't always see that. Would you give us a glimpse of heaven in Psalm 9 this morning, and then send us out full of hope and trust. We praise you for the gospel, the great exchange of Christ's life for ours, so that we might be reconciled to you. For the adults and children here who do not know you, do what we cannot. Put them in fear of you for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, there's, uh, there's really no better way to start a sermon than with a, a very foreign word. A very foreign word. Uh, Psalm 9 begins, To the choir master, according to Muthleben, a psalm of David. Okay, here's some, some context for that. For Muthleben, a psalm of David. Quite a few scholars believe that, that this word, this tricky word, which is why in your Bible it probably says Muthleben, and it's not translated, but it likely means death of a son, which, which in the wider context of the Psalms, it does make sense. Back in Psalm 3, David is on the run. The Psalm is about David on the run for his life from his son, Absalom. In Psalm 3, Absalom is out to kill his own father, take the throne. This takes place in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 18 through 19, we find out that Absalom gets killed and David mourns. It is his son. And if you were here with us during our our 2 Samuel series, you'll remember when when Pastor Kyle Sheeran taught on this. Absalom revolts against his father David. And then what happens? After a, a surprise turnaround, Absalom gets killed. When David hears of Absalom's death, he mourns excessively. It's like he forgot that Absalom's men had also killed many of David's own men. And and our pastor, preaching and teaching pastor, explained it this way. He said, David's sin was not that he grieved. Grieving is very good and appropriate. His sin was that he grieved excessively. He would not allow himself to be comforted. So, So 2 Samuel displayed David's sinful response to his son's death. Psalm 9 shows David's right response to the death of a son. In 2 Samuel, David grieved like the godless. In Psalm 9, David lamented as one of the godly. Knowing the word is just so, it's so freeing. It's so freeing. Christian, when you react sinfully, that should never be the end of it. Instead, be who you are in Christ. Bring it to the light. Repent to God, repent to others, and you can choose 
to move forward with a, a righteous retrospect. It's wonderful. It's so good. And we're not even in the first verse of Psalm 9, so, so let's, uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look at Psalm 9's countdown, the unforgettable countdown. So first, we have the four wills, verses 1 through 2, 1 through 2, the three reminders, the two gates, the one shot in the foot, verses 15 through 17, the none who are forgotten, verses 18 through 19, and finally, mere minutes to midnight. So first, the four wills. Look at Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. David says, four times over, I will. In verses one and two, four times over, I will give thanks. I will recount. I will be glad and exult. I will sing praise. This wholehearted thanks expresses total investment. Total investment. Right away, David refers to his Bible, where God clearly commands, this is in the Torah, God clearly commands complete allegiance. Your whole what? Heart, mind, and strength. David's consecutive will statements, it, it, conveys, it conveys determination. He loves the Lord without reservation. And, and this uh, wonderful deeds we see in verse one, it's actually, it's actually a single Hebrew word. If uh, you have the NASB, you would see this translated as wonders. And most of us here, when we think of wonderful deeds, well, we think, oh, well, that's, that's wonderful. We think of it in a good way, right? Like, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. We think of it in a positive sense. Uh, but this word, wonderful deeds or wonders, it includes terrifying deeds. Terrifying deeds. Deeds that display God's salvation and God's judgments. These were deeds that the Lord alone could and did perform. Exodus chapter 3 explains God's wonderful deeds as the plagues. In Exodus, God tells Moses, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in it. Psalm 9 and then the Psalms elsewhere, when they use this wonderful deeds or wonders, they say it in the same way. Psalm 106, 7, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wonderful works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled at the Red Sea. They, they rebelled at the Red Sea in part because they had forgotten God's miraculous plagues he unleashed on Egypt. Later in 106, it says this, verse 22, wondrous works done in the land of Egypt and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Referring to the splitting of the Red Sea in two, followed by what? Splitting of Pharaoh's chariots in two. Here in Psalm 91, David gives thanks to God for the way he perfectly handled giving judgment to Egypt. And David also is reflecting on his own life the way God has perfectly handled David's own past. In what? Giving out judgment, the slaying of Goliath, the escape from King Saul, and now divine retribution on his own son, Absalom. Verse two, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Okay? Again, David goes back to his Bible 
O Most High. This is the name of God that Abraham gave honor to after God gave him victory over the kings, after blood was shed. And I keep pointing back to David's use of the Old Testament because it's really important to see. Whenever you're reading the Psalms, they're not just poetically pulled from thin air. That the Psalms build one upon another. But when you see the, the Psalter's majesty, it's like, it's like the laying of perfect brick and mortar, but, it, but it's not laid on top of dirt. It, it's laid off of the foundation of God's character it, that is revealed, revealed through his wonders, written for us in his word. David was a historically grounded king. David exalts in God here like he exalts in God back in Psalm 5. God's past and perfect performance means victory. It's just, it's just beyond certain. God Most High brought Abraham incredible victory over multiple kings. Israelite slaves witnessed God toppling the world superpower. The Egyptian army, gone. Goliath, killed by a God-guided pebble. There's no exulting in, there's no extreme bliss in a probable win or a possible victory. The, the psalmist exults in God because victory is a guarantee. So David will give thanks to God. He will recount God's wonders. He will be glad in God. He will sing praises to God. The four wills. Next, the three reminders. Look at verse three. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So reminder, reminder number one is that God maintains David's cause. That's reminder number one. We see that in verse four. Uh, we'll see in verse, in verse 10, reminder number two, God does not forsake his own. Reminder number two, God does not forsake his own. Reminder number three is in verse 12. God remembers the afflicted. God remembers the afflicted. First, God maintains David's cause. This is the first reminder. David provides a, a really vivid, intense depiction of God. David's enemies realize too late that they are sunk. God's ruling, it's like it hammers down from heaven. Favor to David, death to David opposers. They stumble and they perish in God's presence. God has acted on behalf of his servant. He has chased down the enemy. God's presence, God's presence, it is a peace like no other for his friends. It is a terror like no other for his foe. Verse 4, 4 for, F-F-O-R, for, you have maintained my just cause. God destroys the wicked because of David's just cause. What cause is that? Verse four goes on to say, you have sat on the throne. It, it is the cause of God's throne. It's the very promise God gave to David, that David would, would have a throne lasting forever. It's an argument from greater to lesser. As long as God abides, as long as he remains enthroned, David's throne cannot be overthrown. 
Reminder one, God maintains David's cause. Verses five through eight, that actually unpacks for us how God will maintain David's cause. Look at verse five. You have rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities, you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Verse verse five through six, if you notice, these addressed past judgment. You have rebuked, you have made, you have blotted. Verses seven through eight, these actually address a future judgment. God judges the world with righteousness. These judgments of God are are what scholars refer to as prophetic perfects, prophetic perfects. They're, They're a feature of the Old Testament. They describe coming events as if they have already happened. So certain is their fulfillment and so clear the vision. So, so God, God has shut down nations in the past and, and he will do it again. It's so certain that it might as well have already happened. Verse seven, it says that God sits enthroned forever. Again, this reinforces to us that God maintains David's cause. One scholar wrote of God's eternal enthronement in this way. It says this, However high the violence of men may be carried, and although their fury may burst forth without measure, they can never drag God from his seat. Because God cannot be dethroned, God's promise to David will always be upheld. Now on to reminder two. God does not forsake his own. Start in verse nine. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This word for oppressed, it conveys extreme oppression extreme oppression, the experience of being utterly crushed down, broken down like like fine powder. And if you notice the comparison, in, in no way, shape, or form are we strong like God is strong. He is a mighty fortress. We are mere mortals. Verse nine's word picture, it's, it's stunning. The castle of God's vast grandeur protects what? Puny, puny little dust mites like, like us. You say, I'm not, I'm not a dust mite. Well, yes, yes, you are. We all are. And, and what a, a gift that is for those of us in Christ. God, in all his might, he will not forsake even the most insignificant among us. One pastor said of this, he said, God helps those who cannot help themselves. What a, what a terrible, uh, damning word that is. God helps those who can help themselves. Some people think that belongs in the Bible. How many, how many people have that, that just led astray? God helps those who cannot help themselves. Verse 10, those who know your name, 
One, one pastor said this, knowing Yahweh is not simply a matter of mental cognition. Rather, it involves complete reliance on him instead of on self, others, power, or wealth. And it must be the pursuit of the heart. In verse 10, we find true help in God when we place our trust in him. The argument for God's reliability, it is a closed case. How could you not trust someone who has literally a perfect track record? One scholar points out that God's wonderful deeds in the past show how he has not let down those who have come to him for help. And that this breeds confidence in those who know him. Why did the ancient Israelites sing and pray the Psalter? It it breeds confidence in the God who is mighty to save. The psalmist wants us to understand that that the feeling of being forgotten by God, and and actually being forgotten by God, it, it could not be more apart. And Christian, be careful. Be careful with your words. Be, be wise to not bring dishonor on the Lord's name by giving into the temptation that, that even if you're undergoing spiritual oppression, extreme spiritual oppression, don't give into the temptation that God has somehow gone off and, and misplaced you. God has no amnesia. You saint bought by the blood of the lamb, you have never once slipped his mind. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. This is our third reminder. God remembers the afflicted. God remembers the afflicted. This third reminder, again, David pulls us back into the Old Testament. Uh, In Genesis 9, after the flood, God tells Noah, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The, The expression avenges blood or avenger of blood, indicates that God, who is the the giver of all life, also acted as judge of those who took life or attempted to take life. The the word avenges, it, it literally means seeks. God does not passively wait for sinners to just come across his gaze. He knows where they are. He seeks them out. There is a heavenly demand that crimes against God's people will be dealt with. There's no intention of the heart that is left unexposed. So reminder number one, God maintains David's cause. He keeps his promises. We know this to be true. Because God kept his promise to David, we are sealed by Christ's promised Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Reminder number two, God does not forsake his own. Likewise, the Son of God does not forsake his own. Jesus could not be any more clear with us than he was. He does not forsake us. Reminder number three, God remembers the afflicted. The Father knows true affliction. 
He afflicted his son to the point of shedding blood so that we might become his children. He would no sooner forget his afflicted son than he would forget one of his children. Verse 13, the two gates. Look at me in, with uh, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So we have gate number one, death's gate. Gate number two, Zion's gate. Now, before entering most, most ancient cities, you would have first gone through the gates. And back then, uh, because the gate was the, the entry point to the city, they were often very impressive structures. One scholar said that it would have been possible to stand in the gates because in most instances, there, there were two or three gates staggered one behind another, forming two or three chambers. Uh, the ancient gates, they, they were representative. They were a part taken for the whole. The, the gates would have, they would have represented the magnificence and splendor of the whole city. So in Psalm 122, it joyfully says, our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. It's not saying that the gates are just the best part of the city. Right? It signifies that the journey is over for now. Hopeful rest awaits. It's like when you return through the airport gates after being gone outside of the U.S. and you hear the words, welcome back to the U.S. You've been back in the U.S., but it's just nice to hear the words. It's like stepping in your house after being gone for a long time and you're already in the house, but when you hear the words, when a loved one says, welcome home. That's, that's when you really feel at home. You know, what, what better way for an Israelite to be at ease than to be at the gates of Zion, the gates of the daughter of Zion, because God was their father, the very city of God. And when David's enemies threatened him, they, it's like they symbolically dragged him to the gates of death. At moments from death's door, David is saved and he's brought to the gates of life. To where? The very presence and power of God. So, so for, for a moment, let's, let's take a, a step back, maybe a big step back, not a step out of the text, but a step back. Uh, why, why does God save sinners? Why does God save, what am I saying? Why does God save anyone? He wouldn't do it for our sake, our sins are too great. We are, we are not righteous. Why would God save anyone? Look at the text, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that, verse 14, so that I may recount all your praises so that I may rejoice in your salvation. Why, why would God save anyone? I, don't, don't miss out on this. God saves us so that we would bring glory to him. We, we are saved to glorify. We are saved to glorify. Verse 13, God do this. Be gracious to me. I don't deserve it, but please do it so that, what? 
I may live for your glory and rejoice. God, God saves sinners because it, it amplifies his overflowing grace. He, he could not be more gracious. Did you know that? His grace overflows. So when the psalmist cries out, be gracious to me so I can glorify you, I can sing your praises and have joy in you, God goes, yes, that's it. This is why I save the most vile of sinners, even, even murderers, so that you would begin to know just how great I am. Closer to the end of life's journey, the, the gates of death, they, they won't be just a symbol to us. They'll be an increasing, rea- increasing reality as we face passing from this life to the next. And there's, there will be some of us who will go on through to the gates of life. But there are some of us who will proudly choose death. Psalm 9, 15 through 16 shows us who will choose death. One shot in the foot. Look at verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higayon Selah. We'll get, we'll get to those last two words in, in a bit. We have some work to do first, and then we'll get to those words, the strange words. Higayon and a not-so-strange word, Selah. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. Uh, In both ancient and in modern times, we we see this. You can dig a pit, you can hunt a wild animal, you can place camouflage over the pit and and dig it deep enough that that captured animal, uh, whatever prey it is, couldn't climb out of it. But the wicked are are shown here to set a trap like that, and, and it's like they forgot where they put it. They're forgetful. They end up falling in themselves. The modern-day equivalent of this would be what? Shooting yourself in the foot. You know, the bullet meant for evil now makes the wicked into a hospital patient. We see quite clearly the characteristics of the wicked. In verse 3, they stumble. This is what happens to all the wicked. They stumble when forced to face God's presence. Verses 15 through 16, the very act of trying to destroy another's life signals their undoing. They, they light the match that burns down the whole house. So I think we can say that, that a chief characteristic of the wicked is that the wicked lack any and all stability. They, they have no stability. Either their own crimes destroy them. One scholar said this. Either their own crimes destroy them or God's judgment prepares an end to their doings. There's no rest for the wicked in this life or the next. And so how would we summarize evil in, in Psalm 9? I, I, I would call evil, I would call it this, an endangered species. It is an endangered species. When they endanger others, they endanger themselves. One, one theologian says it, says it really well. I like this. This world was not made as a place where the universe cooperates with evil deeds, nor was life created so that wicked people would find their way to some wicked man's paradise. 
Church, where, where does true power lie? Like who, who really holds the power? I think if, if we could just breathe in the oxygen of Psalm 9, what, what would we exhale? God. God has all the power in every situation, at every time, in every place. When you see a wicked person doing wicked things, don't, don't let your first thought be, they're getting away with it again. Instead, I would ask that you would live in the, the biblical world, the real world. They're about to shoot themselves in the foot. The wicked appear to have power over many, but God has power over them. And, and yet, it is not as though there are no afflicted persons. Psalm 9's afflicted saints, they, they know that wickedness shoots itself in the foot, but it also takes plenty of the righteous down with it. The, the biblical world, the real world, knows that God's justice is not restricted to our lifetime. How do we know this? Revelation 6.10 is very clear. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Whenever the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands, be, be sure that God worked in that wonderfully. And if you don't see if you don't see the justice of God against the evildoer, don't, don't shrink back. Don't wonder at the wonders or the lack of wonders of God. He will deal with evil in his timing. John Calvin said of this, he says, God delays to interfere no longer than he knows it to be advantage for us to be humbled under the cross. God's timing is, it is spot on. It, and this, this intentional providential time between divine sentencing and divine destruction is, is what is called the patience of God. This time is the patience of God. It is God's forbearance. All the wicked will either repent or face retribution. God, God in his sovereign mercy has allowed time for this. Paul says it well in Romans. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You, know, you, you and I, we, we question the timing of God. There's just too much suffering. It's too great. There's just too much wickedness in the world. Something must be done now. To which the, the pastors all here say, yes, <laughs> embrace the gospel, take up your cross, do something. Be a part of the many members here who bring the gospel of Jesus to lost men and women every single day, lost coworkers, family members, friends, neighbors who face, who face no hope. Give them that hope. Well, one final note here, and then we'll, we'll move on. I told you I would talk about this. Hegion Selah, okay? Um, we, we don't have a, a precise understanding of these words, but we can get pretty close. Uh, selah seems to mean a pause in the reciting of the psalm. Maybe it's a, a pause in order to reflect, in order to emphasize what was just spoken. 
for the purpose of meditation, hegion. Uh, it also might be a musical crescendo um, where, where there's this high point in the text. And in ancient Israel, they would have sung many of these psalms and they, they would have had this musical crescendo or, or a musical interlude. There's, a, there's some various uh, ideas out there. And in my study, I think it's accurate to say that hegion means meditation. Uh, selah is most likely a pause, a pause for effect. Uh, we have some children here uh, with the name Selah. Um, and I, I've made an observation about that. No one, no one here seems to be chomping at the bit to name their kid Haggaion. Uh, if, you, if you ever choose to name your kid that, you know, you let me know. I'll just put them on my prayer, prayer list now. Um, the, the concept of, of memory is a theme within this psalm and many other psalms. To, to remember requires meditation, Haggaion. Selah. If we do not meditate on God's word, we will forget and we will become fools. F.B. Meyer, who's a, who's a contemporary of, of D.L. Moody, he said this, men, so, so Christian men and women, complain of their little faith. The remedy is in their own hands. Let them set themselves to know God. But for all this, you must make time. You cannot know a friend from hurried interviews, much less God. So you must steep yourself in deep, long thoughts of his nearness and his love. You know, to, to forget, to forget is to associate ourselves with the wicked. To remember is to associate ourselves with the godly. Look in verse 17, the nun were forgotten. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. The, the poor, the needy, the, the forgotten, the nobodies, the knowns of the world, who, who are they? Well, it's not just, not just the needy in general. It's not just the, the poor in general. It's those who are afflicted children of God. It's those who have sworn loyalty to Yahweh and that are in dire straits. This, this theme of memory is weaved throughout this psalm. There, there are the forgetful, the wicked, the forgotten, the afflicted, and the forgettable, also the wicked. The forgetful. In verse 17, what do they do? What do they do? They forget God. The forgotten, in verse 18, they will not always be forgotten, seem to be forgotten right now. And then the forgettable. We already saw this in verses five through six. Their very memory is blotted out. And there's the one true God who does what? In verse 12, who does not forget. He who avenges blood does not forget. Psalm 9 teaches us that the forgetful are forgotten and the forgotten are remembered. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you ever think about the ramifications of living your days 
in forgetfulness about God, to whom you owe every bit of your existence. Any, any good thing you've experienced, any gift you have received, and joy that you have tasted, is created by the Lord. And you, you forget him? You care nothing for his word. Don't, don't let Psalm 9, don't let this skip on you. This says your very memory will be forgotten. This is very serious. Let Psalm 9 be a, a, a spiritual wake-up call. But the nuns, the, the zeros, the afflicted, those of us who have nothing to offer the great I am, by his great grace, they will never be forgotten. This infuses, this infuses the none who are forgotten with, with fresh courage. So, so we say Psalm 919 with, with renewed confidence. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. David here, again, quotes his Bible. Uh, when Israel wandered in the desert, what would happen? Numbers 10, 35. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. Again and again, David knew the Holy Scriptures. The other psalmists knew the Holy Scriptures and brought them to bear on all of life. David prays to ask for God to help the helpless, to intervene for the sake of his own glory. Finally, verse 20, mere minutes to midnights. Verse 20, put them in fear, O Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. David comes full circle here. He, he funnels his thanksgiving to God into this request for, for divine aid. God, just, just like you showed your wonders to the Egyptians, show your wonders to those here who defy you. The scholar Peter Craigie says that the word employed for man here, it has all the implications of human fragility and weakness in contrast to God. David is communicating this to us. He's saying, I, I want God, I want him to make it clear how fragile all of this is. We think we have more time. We, we think tomorrow is just another day. And, and so it will be for some of us, but we do not always consider that it might be our last. The span of time between now and the end of our earthly existence, it, it is hardly a blip on the timeline of eternity. We, we are mere minutes from that countdown, minutes away from the very rest of our lives. And God is the one controlling all of this. He, he is orchestrating the downfall of the wicked so well, sometimes so efficiently, he simply uses against them what they brought to the fight. There's not a speck of data or detail that God's not tracking in your life. From, from its start to its finish, he holds the power. We are at his mercy. But we who are in Christ, we know that it's a great mercy. It is a great mercy. David faced death, but he was lifted up from the gates of death. The very gates that God brought his son down to. Jesus faced all oppression. He was crushed for our sins. 
death's gate shut over him. And on the third day, we know that 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 was unable to hold him. So, So biblical thanksgiving, biblical thanksgiving, it's not for the faint of heart, is it? God, thank you for your wondrous works. God, thank you, thank you for the daisies that grow. Thank you for the trees that grow. Absolutely. That's, that's other Psalms, right? This is Psalm 9. Thank you for splitting the sea in two. Thank you for splitting Pharaoh's chariots in two. Thank you for splitting Goliath's skull in two. In all these, you have preserved your anointed one and your people. But God, God most high, we, we will thank you most of all for not, for not preserving your son. Thank you for breaking his body. Thank you for spilling his blood. Thank you for raising your anointed one, Jesus Christ, back from the dead. So some final applications. Non-Christian, you, you, need, you need a new heart full of thanks. Did you know that one of, one of your greatest sins is not, it, it might not be what you think it is. It's that you are not thankful to God. You do not give him the credit he rightly deserves. But, but you ought to be thankful to him without reservation. But you are not because you were born into sin. It, sin is what separates you from God and it ensures, it ensures that you do not know him. You were a mere mortal with just a few fleeting moments left to spare before stepping into the gates of eternity. The, the, the gates you will enter is the gate of death. The only way to the gate of life is through what? Through confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You must repent. You must stop living for yourself. And And join in and say to God Most High, God, thank you for not sparing your son's life. Thank you for breaking his body. Thank you for spilling his blood. Thank you for raising him from the grave. God, forgive me. Save me. And his promises stand. He has a perfect track record. He will forgive you. Christian, now, meditation on the Psalms will, will produce the right questions for your souls. I, I encourage you to meditate on the Psalms. Find the right questions in the Psalms. Here's a, great, here's a great question for us brought about by heartfelt meditation on Psalm 9. Were God always, by his grace, to prevent affliction from befalling us, who is there among us? Who would not be wholly attached to the present life? Who is there among us? God can see your afflictions past and present. And he he has done you no wrong. He has only done what will draw you to him and bring him glory. Let's pray. Father, in the past, we see that you cared for your people perfectly. You upheld every promise to your anointed prophets, priests, and kings. We praise you for this. In the present, we bear witness to the truth that Jesus has suffered the affliction we deserve, your wrath, and has made us into a new people. We will give you thanks for this. We will recount this. We will sing of this 
from now until forever, for the future. God, by your grace, may we find strength from knowing that in any affliction, in Christ, we are among the none who are forgotten. We ask that, that what David, like Moses before him, asks of you, arise, O Lord, and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Amen.